podcasting from Chico, California, tucked in between some of Northern California's best freshwater fisheries. This is the Barbless Podcast, a podcast about NorCal fly fishing, guiding, fisheries management, and sustainability. If you have ideas or any questions for the show, leave the guys a voice message on the Barbless Podcast hotline, area code 530-636-2523. Also check out http colon slash slash podcast.barbless.co, where you can download past episodes and show notes. Be sure to follow them on Instagram at barbless.co and connect with them on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash barbless.co. Here's your hosts, Chad Alderson and Nick Hanna. Fish on. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Barbless Fly Fishing Podcast. Um, your host, Nick Hanna, and I'm here with uh, Chad Alderson. Chad, how are we doing, man? We're good. You don't look so good, though. Are you still sick? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Got the crud. I got the crud. Um, but I don't want to wait. I, we got some cool guests um, on the other line. I don't want to waste their time. I've got Brandon and Sean on the other line. How you guys doing? Doing well, thanks. Uh, Brandon. Yeah, I'm doing great. Thank you. Yeah, thank you guys for uh, for joining us. This episode's going to be pretty fun. It's just um, it, you know, it's about pinniped. Uh, I might have butchered that, but predation, uh, basically what, what sea lions. Yeah, right, I was going to ask our, you what a pinniped is on our coast. Such uh, a biologic well, biology term. These guys are gonna, these guys are going to fill fill <laughs> fill us in because <clears throat> excuse me. All we do is talk about. Um, the scars that we see on our, our steelhead and our salmon. Um, and, and obviously fishermen are frustrated and, um, there's things like the Marine Mammal Protection Act that are in place. And, uh, we just kind of want to get a, a, just the gist is kind of the overall picture of where, you know, where we've been, where we are and where we're going with, with this whole thing. And, uh, Brandon, Brandon, uh, introduce yourself. Tell us, tell the listeners who, who you are first. Yeah, so my name is Brandon Chasco. I, I recently finished a, a PhD up at Oregon State University. My background is um, mostly commercial fishes, uh, salmon up in Alaska, and sort of middle depths uh, ocean fishes down in New Zealand, where I spent a little couple years. Um, but recently, I was asked to participate in a project uh, involving uh, the interactions between threatened populations of killer whales up in the Pacific Northwest and uh the different types of pinnipeds so um sean can fill you in on the probably the biology of uh pinnipeds better than i can but several species of seals and sea lions in the pacific northwest northwest and and in particular you know just as fishermen appreciate the salmon and steelhead that they catch in rivers the resident populations of orcas up in the salish sea and and interior passage of, of canada and, and alaska they feed almost exclusively on Chinook salmon. And as one of their populations has continually dropped, the question is, are they getting enough food? Right. And, um, you know, one of the primary um, uh, populations that they think may be reducing their, their food base are the, the pinnipeds, the, the harbor seals, California sea lions, and stellar sea lions Interesting. Uh, population. That's so, so we're going to... Yeah, we're yeah, gonna go we're gonna get back to all that too. Um, shortly. Sean, um, tell us tell the listeners who you are, please. Sure. Yeah. So um, I work for the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife. I'm the policy analyst here, 
um, a fish guy actually, and I kind of got into seal, sea lions a couple of years ago. Um, folks might have heard that we have a situation in some of our freshwater areas, hundreds of so miles from the ocean, where we've got some sea lions that are basically preying some of our fish runs towards extinction. So, um, you know, I got involved in trying to get some amendments to the Marine Mammal Protection Act so we could deal with that, um, and then also um, applying for a lethal removal authority and trying to help implement that program here in the basin. So fish guy, but learning more about seals and sea lions. So did, did I get, did I hear you right? You're, there's, there's seals or sea lions a couple hundred miles up the rivers. Yeah. Well, not seals. Um, sea lions. we're primarily worried about sea lions, uh, particularly California's and Stella's. And yeah, we've seen them. We have some that sit up around the Dallas Dam, which is um, probably 140, 150 oh, miles from the ocean. That's crazy. We've seen them. We've seen them on Chetco, like a couple miles, three miles up. That's as far as I've ever yeah. seen them. That's nuts. I had no yeah. idea that they they ranged that far. That's they crazy. do now. Yeah. <laughs> why? It seems like an awful lot of effort to do that. Why would they? Why would they feel compelled to go? that far up against a river when they could just chill in the, you know, at like the, I don't know, at the harbor there and just pound them all day as they're coming through. Well, I think part of that is, uh, um, you know, you wanted to talk about the, um, the history of sea lions and we've had this just since the MMPA has come into effect, we've had this just um, dramatic recovery. And so you've got 300,000 odd sea lions trying to make a living and not all of them can do it in the ocean. So you get this spread of distribution where they start expanding their range, and part of that small number, small number, find out that these places up in freshwater are really profitable because all these fatty chinook and fatty sturgeon and steelhead are confined into this really restricted area, and they're pretty vulnerable. So if you're a sea lion male, you can go up there, spend a couple of months, and put on twice as much weight as your compatriot in the ocean, and then head back down to California and probably have more breeding success. So that's why they do it year after year because okay. hmm. they for, can put on so much weight. <laughs> for our listeners, the, M- the MMPA, that's the Marine Mammal Protection Act, right? So, yeah, that's, that's the, the act. It's kind of like the ESA for marine mammals. It, it's uh, Yeah, it's uh, uh, as, the act of, as the name implies, it's pretty much all about protection right. rather than management. And, so, and you guys – oh, go ahead. You guys got a um, – pretty much like a, a special permit to, to test some uh, what eradication practices on those on those river sheds watersheds is that right um, yes yeah, sort of yeah so um, back in 1994 um, there was a, a the act was amended to recognize the problems that were happening up in Seattle around Bell of Locks where um, there was a few sea lions, California sea lions. One of them they called Herschel, found ballad locks. And again, we're kind of preying on the winter steelhead run there and driving it towards extinction. Um, the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife tried pretty much everything they could to deter those few sea lions, but um, they're smart and they learn after a while that there's no kind of consequence. So, so you're, um, when you said they tried everything they could, you're talking about uh, basically like non lethal stuff. Yeah, everything non-lethal to the point of um, radio station uh, running a competition to build a fake orca to try and deter it. Um, <laughs> like a scarecrow, basically? Yeah, 
Yeah. That's crazy. Sang, but... Is that that sounds nuts. Yeah, it didn't work out so well. Sounds expensive. Um, they, they, how long before they were just sitting up on top of it and sunning themselves? <laughs> didn't take too long. Yeah, That's but um, funny. yeah, that that whole kind of episode um, led to a lot of pressure in Congress to amend the MMPA, and so they bought in what they call Section One Twenty, which is this fairly narrow provision that says um, if the states could approve that um, these individual sea lions were were having a significant negative impact on the salmon or steelhead that were listed then they could get authority to remove those particular sea lions. So it's, it was really linked to particular place and particular individual sea lions and having to prove their impact. And so okay. that's what we've operated under for 20 years. And then just recently in December, we pushed or advocated for changes, um, which they passed in late December, um, which give more flexibility to that. So that's kind of the regulatory framework that we operate in um, we applied for diesel removal authority for specific places and specific sea lines and then um, we have to prove that those sea lines are the ones causing the problem and then we can remove them so so this new this new legal tool that you guys have um, Brandon was that the impetus behind the study that you guys conducted your team no it's it's actually kind of interesting the, I think what Sean's referring to, there's this uh, recent act. I don't know what the status of it is. I know it made it past the Senate, but I don't know if it's made it past the House yet or been signed into law. It's the Endangered Salmon Predation Prevention Act. And, you know, it's it has wide bipartisan support. It's Democrats and Republicans from Washington, Oregon, Idaho, all these people that are, are um, implementing all sorts of mitigation measures to uh, um, restore a lot of these uh, wild salmon populations. And I, I actually don't know what the status of that um, that act is at this point, but the, our study was actually cited by by a couple of the senators in the act, even though that 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 wasn't the underlying motivation of our study. Um, but I, you know, I can see how um, evidence from from our research um, would would provide information to for the for the passage of that act and that is you know if you look at the numbers if you just you know it's 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 a sort of this unobservable process it's very rare that you can witness a, a salmon or a seal or sea lion uh consuming a salmon and I, and i realize you know i mean i know a lot of fishermen spend time in the water and they'll see uh, a seal you know either stealing a fish off their line or you know surfacing with a with a salmon yeah, but to, to quantify that across an entire population, it's actually really difficult. Yeah, um, I was going to say that who, there's probably five people listening right now that can send you go GoPro footage of something like that happening. <laughs> well, it wasn't just in the exactly. it wasn't just in the rivers; it was in the ocean too. You know, you have commercial fishermen, you know, with their livelihoods, and they're trying to catch fish, and then they have these animals coming up and and taking their basically their money you know so what do you yeah. what would you do as you know as an angler or a, a fisherman you know dynamite and you know yeah. guns were involved i mean this and, and i'm sure it still goes on talk talk about that history a little bit brandon white why is there such an go back to i guess the history of the coastline and how this came to be because i think about i mean I've been fishing a long time and I've never seen, you know, I hear all these stories about great whites, all these great whites showing up now. And, and mm-hmm. is it because, you know, there's just such a, a, a vast amount more of, of, of sea lines around or. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know why the great whites are there. Um, 
um that's pretty cool that they're around though yeah <laughs> i'm not i don't surf anymore so right. it's like i, I think it's kind of <laughs> right cool. i was about um, to ask <laughs> yeah. uh but you know that there's no doubt that the population of seals and sea lions are at uh probably at capacity at this point um and so you know they were down to i think it was 10,000 individuals total on the on the um california coast uh which is you know was was getting pretty low Wow. It, it, you know, it may have been lower than that, but I'm thinking it was somewhere around 10,000. Yeah. And, you know, they're up, if you include pups, sub-adults, everything, you know, the population, it sort of plateaued out at about 300,000. And that's just, that's a lot of biomass. That's a lot of mouths to feed. What, what and, historically have they, have they been at, you know, just, you know, were they just always at 300,000 or you said that's, that's like the plateau. It was like the happy medium for that. And, and why did they go down to 10,000? Well, I'm not sure what what caused the decline. I'm sure that a lot of that had to do with um, with lethal measures on the part of different, you know, different individuals. You know, I, I mean, up in Canada, they used to blow them up. They used to blow up the beaches with, you know, where the, the seals and sea lions would haul out. Um, and and so, you know, it's I think a lot of it was competition with fishermen but i don't know specifically hmm. what led to the to the massive decline i know that even today there are large um large reductions in the populations just due to uh, environmental conditions you know when the blob came through the warm blob came right. through and, right. and messed with the ecosystem and and decreased the food base there was a there was a pretty big die-off in in california sea lions you know a lot of emaciated sea lions that couldn't find food and so you know there are natural um forces that that reduce the population it seems like uh for california sea lions that, that you know that the absolute capacity seems to be somewhere around three thousand three hundred thousand um there's there's people down at the southwest center that, that probably have much better information on that than i do but from what i've seen it looks like they've they've sort of reached the you know it in in the sort of the biological world, we, we have this term called carrying capacity, which mm -hmm. is, the, you know, sort of the maximum number of individuals of a population that can, that can be maintained by the, the environment. And so, you know, for California sea lions, it looks like that's it, you know, up in the, up in the Puget sound area where, where I'm from, or well, I spent a large portion of my life, you know, the, the bigger focus is on, um, a different pinniped, which is the Harbor seals up there. And they've, they had a dramatic increase and it looks like they sort of reached their carrying capacity, at least in Puget Sound waters of anywhere from sort of 10 to 14,000, but they were down at, you know, a thousand individuals or something like that. So, you know, there's, there's sort of natural limitations to a lot of these populations. What's, what seems to have happened, um, at least for the California sea lions and the stellar sea lions is that they have, um, either, found new opportunities or are moving back into historical areas that, that, that they had been, you know, prior to their, their, this population reduction that occurred through the 1970s. And so as Sean was saying, you know, they've sort of moved into the Columbia river system where they're, you know, I mean, it's, I think there's very real possibilities that if nothing's done, a number of steelhead populations on the Willamette river could, could go extinct. Um, <clears throat> and, and so, uh, yeah, so that's that's sort of the the story as far as I know it in terms of these these populations of of pinnipeds on the the California and Washington coast. Sean, you want to add anything? Um, sure. Yeah, I mean, 
we don't actually know what the historical pre 1900s populations of these things um, these species were. Right. Um, we didn't have very good counting back then, um, but it, it's pretty well established that you know the 1900s up to the 1970s, um, seals and sea lions were persecuted widely on the west coast. Um, most of the states had bounties on them. They were actively paying people to go out there and shoot them. Um, there was trades in, in skins and furs. Um, and, you know, that was part of what, um, you know, led to the MMPA was this public outcry over those bounties and right. all the kind of persecution that was going on that led to the MMPA. So that was the major factor in their dramatic decline. Um, and the act is the major factor in their recovery because it essentially cut all that persecution off. Um, and now we're down to a few hundred animals a year. Yeah. And um, the other elements you kind of got going on is, um, you know, historically we use, we look at midden sites, um, tribal middens and see, you know, right. were they around historically thousands of years ago? And right. On the Oregon coast, they're pretty, you know, California sea lions were pretty rare. Um, it's rare to find them in middens on the Oregon coast. We never find them in middens on the Columbia River, um, but we do find harbor seals. So whether they were here historically, they probably weren't here in high numbers. But um, with climate change, um, you're seeing this kind of change in ocean currents that um, a lot of these sea lions from um, off the Channel Islands are being kind of driven north to find more food. And so up until 2012, we had about 500 California sea lions in the Columbia River estuary. Um, 2012, we had that kind of blob, uh, kind of really large-scale shift in ocean currents, and we saw a surge up to 4,000 animals the next year in, in the estuary, and it's kind of bounced around around that since then. So um, they're responding to both the protections and then the changes that are going on in the oceans, and they're just changing their distribution. And, how how do you yeah. um how do you identify a California, you know, man, basically pinniped? The origin is are they tagged? Are you is there a visual marker or two? Um, in terms of like an individual animal. Yeah, I mean, how do you know they're they're coming up from California? I guess. Uh, well, the the only breeding there's only one rookery for California sea lions in in the U.S. and it's on the Channel Islands. The, so, did you say? Um, sorry, you cut out there for a second. Did you say there's only one breeding ground? Yeah, it's in the Channel Islands off California. That's okay. Kind of they got their name. And then there's some other populations around um, Baja, Mexico, but okay. that's the big one. So they all head back there in um, end of May, June to breed. And then um, wow. the males kind of disperse north after there. So, so um, they're all coming from there. Stellas are kind of different. They breed from Oregon all the way around the Aleutian Islands and over to Kamchatka. So they, they actually migrate. So they're up here in the in the kind of winter months feeding on the salmon and steelhead, and then when they're done, they'll they'll go back down and... and um, they get all yeah. fattened up and then go down and get it on, it sounds like. Right. It's pretty, uh, pretty amazing. Like you might have um, 20, 20 animals in a location um, last week in May, and then by that Friday, they're all gone. Um, mm. they, the hormones kick in and they, they head back. Um, mm. We kind of feel like there's a few um, old timers that <laughs> are maybe not as committed and they get halfway there and then decide to give it up and then come back. Yeah. Um, 
they're I, back here in August. So. I can relate to that. That's kind of like the big stri- big stripers that tend to hang out, you know, and just not go anywhere. They just they stay in the freshwater. Yeah. <laughs> so, what, how many pups do these things have? Oh, good question. Like, are they are they called pups? They are, right? <laughs> I believe they so. are. Yeah. 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 How many? Uh, you know, I'd have to. I'll, I'll let Sean answer that. I'm actually <laughs> not not too much of a pinniped biologist. <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm not either. If I had to guess, I'd say two to three, but um, right. it's just a guess. Yeah. And how often do they breed? Once a year, it sounds like? Uh, no. Uh, so the males, you know, they're harem-type breeding, so a male will try and control up to 20, 30 females. So um, the majority of males may never get to breed or may wow. get to breed once in their life. Um, the females, um, I, I, I'm not entirely sure, but they either breed every year or every second year. Um, it will depend a lot on their body condition. Like, have they been able to build up enough fat to support it? Um, Other than man, what is their what's the their main predator? Uh, Sounds great like white sharks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> great white sharks. Uh, and then the um, the transient orcas, so um, not the resident ones that um, Brandon was talking about, but the transient ones that kind of move up and down the coast. Um, they will eat pups and they'll eat harbor seals, um, not so much into the, the big Stellas or big Californias. But they're, the main diet of those orcas are the is the salmon, right? Yeah, there's sort well, of well, there's so two there's populations. Yeah. What, can yeah, you guys repeat that? You were both talking at the same sure. time. There's um there's the resident orcas, and so these have you know sort of um very pretty restricted uh, geographic uh, um, boundaries for for individual populations. So the the southern resident orcas live in the Salish Sea and Puget Sound most of the time, um, or a good portion of their their lives, and then the northern residents. Uh, are the orcas that live on the sort of the the north of Vancouver Island up into southeast Alaska. And then there's another main population called the southeast Alaska residents. And these are all strictly fish eating um, orcas. And they they tend to prefer salmonids for the most part. At least it's like the further south you go, the more they have salmon in their diet. Um, And... And then there's the transient population of orcas, and these are just kind of the roving bands, roving bands of of orcas, and they they focus, um, I don't think solely on marine mammals, but they they do like to to snack on marine mammals. So they'll they'll come into Puget Sound every once in a while, and you know wipe out ten percent of the harbor seal population, and then leave, <laughs> and go to somewhere else and focus on some other pinniped population. It kind of sounds like a mountain lion in, in our foothills. You know, it, it oh, it'll, really? it'll go from, from deer, you know, it'll, it'll thin out the deer population. And if it gets too thin, then they're going to move to the, the wild boars, you know, the pigs and then thin, thin, then thin them, you know, you know, it's kind of like natural selection of interesting that a predator. Um, and that's kind of what I, what I'm thinking when I hear all these things going on and I, and I want to go back to the orcas too, but um, it, for example, there's a, um, a reserve up here that uh, Chico state owns and, and they bought it. It's, it's, um, one of the main tributaries to the Sacramento river that still gets salmon and steelhead. And, um, it's a beautiful place, really neat. They, they do all these kind of studies there and, and 
one of the things that they did, which I thought was super interesting is they, they let people come in and hunt it. You know, they, they mm -hmm. know that that was part of the ecology, part of the ecosystem for hundreds and hundreds of years. You know, there was native Americans there, um, that were hunting that land. So they still want that to be a part of, you know, of that system. And, and it just makes me think, well, why isn't this, why isn't this app, you know, approach applied to, to these sea lions? Cause I know that there's gotta be still, is there still tribes and, um, that, that hunt these for meat and their skin and whatnot? Yeah. I mean, it depends on the species, but yeah, there are definitely tribes that are interested in that. Um, and there's one tribe up in Alaska that's the McCaw tribe that's been trying for a long time to get some, um, dispensation is just the, um, that's one of the problems with the Marine Mammal Protection Act is it's all about protection and not about management so much. Right. It doesn't have any off ramps. It has the same impact whether you've got a thousand sea lions as well, 300,000. And that's not, you know, the ESA is totally different, set up differently. Um, and that's one of the challenges here. And I, I think I, one of the guys on, on the two papers that I wrote recently, um, is a fellow by the name of John Scordino and he works with, um, on blank, the, yeah, the Macaw tribe up, up off of, uh, Northwestern Washington. And he was explaining to me that, and, and I, you know, I'd have to have to look into this, that, that the Marine Mammal Protection Act, I thought was set up similarly to the ESA that once a number of these populations, um, reached uh reached a certain level that it would be turned back to state management um and i think that that's what what at least some of the tribes are arguing now is that you know <laughs> it's time to I, I and i think this is this is occurring at a number of levels both at the state and at the federal level is that um is is sort of moving some of these populations from protected status to managed status and and that has you know all sorts of implications as to how you're going to do that right but um you know, it, one of the interesting things that's happened at NOAA, at least over the last two years, is that, you know, right off the bat, it was, you know, sort of a similar reaction is, okay, like, how are we going to, um, how are we going to get these these salmon and steelhead populations back up to, to reasonable numbers or, you know, um, viable, viable population sizes? And, you know, after these papers came out, it was like, okay, like maybe we need to start thinking about seal coals and, and sea lion coals. And, and it just became such, um, such a heavy lift. I think that, that people, uh, quickly started thinking that, you know, the idea of, of sort of mitigating these salmon populations to get the, the salmon numbers up as much as possible was, was equally as effective. And, and so that's, that's not to say that, um, that lethal removals or, you know, managing, managing these pinniped pop, populations isn't in the future. I think that a number of these, these acts that are sort of moving through, um, through the federal system, look at that. But I, I think this, the main focus is still on figuring out ways to restore these populations through, you know, good upstream management. And then also, mm -hmm. you know, well, we can't really manage the oceans, but looking right. at ways that the, that the oceans are affecting the population. Yeah, when you, when you um when you say upstream management, can you unbox that a little bit? Because I've got some preconceptions of what that might mean. But in in the context of which you're speaking, can you kind of just walk us through what those those methods would be? 
Yeah. Well, for, you know, the, the big system up here is the Columbia River. So yeah. for the Columbia River system, it's, you know, trying to figure out ways to best manage uh, flows to get juvenile salmonids down the river and okay. out to the ocean as quickly as possible. Um, okay. A lot of these habitat restorations, you know, we it seems like we've been working on these habitat issues for, for 20 or 30 years, and right. we have. But it, you know, it really does take time for a lot of these things to take hold. Um, you know, another big one is just keeping water in, in streams for a lot of these fish populations. And, mm-hmm. and you know, the, the most valuable resource in the West is fresh water. And, and so keeping, keeping that water in the, in the streams, I think, is, is, a, is, a big, is a big issue for a lot of these populations. Yeah, um, they need to start. They need to start bon- stop bonking wild steelhead in Oregon is one thing. You know, I mean, I don't know what it what it's like in Washington. Um, I'm, I don't know if it's still the same, but up there, but at least take a couple years off. <laughs> you know, because it, back to what I was saying, death of a thousand cuts between just the sea lions and and obviously water issues uh, or going through a drought. It's definitely uh, taking its toll on on these on these fish. Um, and then listening back to what you were saying about managing this, uh, looking at it from basically a satellite view, it's got to be so hard because orcas are suffering too as well. Did you mention that earlier that they're no, actually that, that they're actually endangered as well, and there's a big issue there? Yeah, and it's 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 interesting on a number of levels. This this whole both of these studies, this this whole motivation uh, for these two papers was really centered around the southern resident populations of killer whales and their numbers were getting close to about 100 individuals and and now i think they're back down to 78 individuals there's been a number of calves that have died also another number of really important breeding females that have died and so you know it looks like you know from from a perspective if you're looking at the line of population abundance you know it looks like these things are in terminal drop and uh and it's just a highly visible, very charismatic species, and nobody wants to see these things go extinct. Right. And so, so one of the questions is: is you know, are these individuals getting enough food? Because there's evidence that you know, um, in good in good salmon years, the calves survive, and low salmon years, the the calves do not survive. And so, uh, you know, just getting fish into the mouths of these killer whales was was a concern and so when we started looking at we started with puget sound because we have a lot of data there and then the second paper sort of look at the entire west coast mm-hmm. um but you know within puget sound for the like i was mentioning earlier the problem there seems to be or the 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 target pinniped there seems to be um harbor seals and they're actually not eating so many adult individuals what they're doing is eating most of the smolts that are coming out of the rivers. Mm-hmm. Not most of the smolts, but most of their consumption of Chinook is is the individuals individuals leaving the rivers. So interesting. Uh, so that adds a you know sort of this crazy complex scenario where you have right. this you know apex predator, this massive killer whale that could easily eat a harbor seal, is being outcompeted by these smaller harbor seals that are essentially eating food before they even get to the yeah. killer whales. I, I don't know if you'll answer the question, if you'll know the answer to this question, but I'll be super impressed if you do. Do you, do you know like roughly per, per seal, how many, how many pounds of fish they eat per day? Well, as sea, a, sea lions and, and harbor seals. Yeah. 
penny pad in general, I guess, on average, and then um, as compared to say an orca per day. Yeah, so it's that's you a do great know. question. You do know. I, I I can give you sort of the um uh on, well, it's it's kind of difficult to answer because what what we look at is in terms of the the sort of the the biomass of, of like the average biomass that a that a in a pet would eat, and it's actually Chinook. I mean, if you if you don't look at the Columbia River. <laughs> And Sean can address the Columbia River specifically. I, I haven't spent a lot of time working in there. Um, but if you look at other areas, at least in terms of Chinook salmon, it's a very small percentage of their diet that's actually coming from, or pinnipeds, that's coming from Chinook salmon. Hmm. A steelhead, we, we didn't look at steelhead, so I'm not quite sure about steelhead. But for Chinook salmon, it's a very small percentage of their diet. And so they're eating roughly... Um, <clears throat> they're eating roughly like four smolts a day. But when you have 15,000 harbor seals in Puget Sound, you know, that's 60,000 fish a day times 360. Right. All of a sudden you're up to 8 million fish being eaten annually. Right. And so if you look at the the bio, the biomass that these harbor seals are eating, it's it's relative to the biomass that the killer whales are eating. It's not very much. Or it's it's less, and the killer whale the killer whales actually eat far more biomass. They're eating anywhere from nine to fourteen adult chinook salmon a day. Okay. And again, you know, I mean that, I mean to me that actually sounds like a lot. I mean these are it's shocking. It's shocking to me how big these things are. Like when I first started doing the calculations, I was like, there is just no way that they're eating that much fish a day. That's right. That seems ridiculous. Now they're but then, massive. Yeah. They're huge. They're nine thousand pounds. Bigger than great, know? bigger than yeah. great white sharks. Yeah, and that's, that's yeah. They're just yeah, incredibly I'm, big, and so you add up those populations, and you know they're eating, you know they're eating three million chinook a year right now. Yeah, and so, it, it seems like the the pinnipeds and the and the orcas are in this pie eating contest, and the pie is the the salmon, and yeah. there might not be enough pie to to uh, last for the competition. Everybody, yeah. may, everybody may lose. Yeah, it's yeah, it's 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 just a difficult situation. I mean, there's no well, there's never going to be there's never going to be uh, a a killer whale coal, and there right. is now selective culling of these pinniped populations. Which, you know, I, look, I, from a scientific view, the population could could easily sustain you know, removing a number of these, these felines and seals from the population. There's no doubt. I mean, we've seen them, we've seen these dramatic recoveries yeah. with, with the management we have in place. So removing individuals is not going to jeopardize the population. So do you guys feel like the, this, uh, the, the MMPA, did I say that right? Will be, mm -hmm. will there be some amendments to make it possible to on a river by river basis at the state level, be able to basically, you know, implement some sort of a culling practice to for for the for with the the intent purpose of basically bringing back steelhead numbers on those particular watersheds that actually opt into the program. And if so, what do you um, think a timeline looks like? I I would be very unoptimistic un about that. Um, so for this, the amendments we just got passed in December, um, we've had folks in the. Working on those kind of concepts for 20 years, 
And it wasn't until the last two years when we could point to Steelhead and say, if we don't do something, there's a tiny percent chance they're going to go extinct. That was the kind of um, I don't know, conflict that really drove our success in getting changes in the act. Um, without something like that, um, it's it's going to be a really uphill battle. It was hard to get that. Um, it took, yeah. like I said, 20 plus years of effort just to get something in the Columbia when it's so obvious. We had so much data to support it. Um, a lot of these other places, it's a lot more murky because, like Brandon said, it's uh, you can't link it to individual animals. It's just that there's a lot of these animals and each one of them is taking a small bite. Yeah, um, I mean... And, and pub, you know, if you think you're going to go out there and, and tell people that we're going to have a, a cull of the population, um, there's a lot of people that like seals and sea lions and are going to be really upset about that. So I just don't see much appetite in Congress to tackle that and there's no no pathway there in the MMPA currently to do it. So um, so it's going to be basically b- business as usual unless there's a five-alarm fire on a particular river and they do something drastic. Is that basically it? Yeah, if you have a scenario like we have in the Columbia, um, I think there's avenues to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, um, I know Washington is looking into things in the Puget Sound, but the options they've got in front of them are pretty... Um, you know, I wouldn't want to be in their shoes because huh. even if they take back management authority, they're stuck with all uh, everything in the MMPA. They just have to administer it now rather than National Marine Fisheries Service. So they, it's not even clear that they could remove enough seals under those provisions to have an impact. So, it, yeah, it's, it's going to be tough. Um we're hearing a lot of different things um, in the fishing and world. You know, uh, the ocean's dying. Um, there's new species of fish moving their way up into Alaska, into that water that's never been there before. The salmon populations in Alaska are super low that are now affecting the or. I mean, can you – is there a storyline that, that's there that, um, that we haven't heard really yet um, about that? Do you guys know – are you familiar with what I'm talking about? Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm not. Go ahead. Yeah, there there are a lot of changes going on. You know, particularly around 2015 when we had that um, the blob up in um, southeast Alaska. Mm-hmm. Um, we saw a lot of California species coming up here. We had those pyrosomes and um, what are they called again? Pyrosomes, those kind of sea squirt things. Yeah, like, yeah, that's yeah. exactly what I heard. That's yeah. I heard a lot of those. They were clogging up nets and everything. Um, we had species we've never seen before here. Um, so there is a, just a lot of change going on out there. Um, and, you know, that's going to continue. Um, it, and on top of that, we've got kind of ocean acidification going on. Um, we're unsure how that's going to play out, but probably won't be in a good way. So um, things are changing, and our management is just trying to catch up with that, right. um, but our management systems are not flexible enough to deal with that at the moment because they've been built around this period of stability and that's just not there anymore. So, um, yeah, it's going to be challenging to um, to kind of deal with what's going to be thrown at us. Um, I'm going to get back to the orca thing for a second because of the thought occurred to me. Well, um, if the if the sea lions 
range sometimes, you know, hundreds of miles up river to find salmon and they're they're going that they're going there because the biomass doesn't at the at the mouth of the river just isn't there like it used to used to be. So they're incented to go upstream. Um, why don't the orcas do something similar? Like why don't they go north? You know, where possibly there's there's a higher density of salmon to eat. Or Russia where they yeah, like why are they, is there something about the orca that, you know, do they just, they like their hood and they like where they shop and stuff like that? Or are they just kind of, you know, sedentary individuals or how does that, how does that work? Yeah, well, that's, a, that's a great question. Sorry, go ahead, Sean. Um, they are pretty territorial. So that, like Brandon said, there's those th- three or four resident um, pods and you find you kind of where the Southeast Alaska pod overlaps with the Southern resident orchid pod. There's a little bit of area there and where they come into, um, where that overlaps, there's usually some conflict between those two pods there. So they, they don't like to go into the other pods territory. Um, and they have their preferred area and for whatever reason they have their preferred prey. Um, and they just don't seem able to switch, um, and adapt. So, Mm. um, you know, the transients are the ones that um, are, have much more flexibility in, in their diet and, and where they go. So do you think given, you know, climate change and all this other stuff that's affecting, you know, fish fish passage, all this other stuff, Do the, it sounds like, you know, the nature is going to select going forward for that transient pod. Is that a fair assumption? Not entirely because um, – uh, of the resident pods, the uh, southern residents in trouble, but the ones in um, Alaska and BC are doing really well. Um, really well. They've they um, they've gone from fifty animals over to, to over three hundred in some cases. So okay. um, it just depends where you are. Um, so it's literally um, just bad luck. Like they were born in like the equivalent of Afghanistan. If they're if we're looking at natural resources. So, well, they're, they're at the end of the food chain. So yeah. when the salmon come back, the the northern killer whales get first crack at them. And by the time they get through there and seals, they're the last ones in the food chain and there's not much left. Okay. I mean, there, there's some other really significant issues affecting the, the southern resident. I mean, they were yeah, they were true. the ones that were mostly affected by the aquarium, the you know, the sort of the marine mammal trade, you know, for the sea world populations. And oh. and right now the populations are so low that, you know, you have you have mother son and father daughter offspring, which, you know, in, in human populations is 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 taboo. And, and, you know, within the killer whale population, I'm sure, you know, leads to. If it's not taboo, it still leads to the same genetic bottlenecking that 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 you know is in Duma population. And in addition to that, the 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 toxin loads on these animals is through the roof. I mean, they can't even they can't even bury a, a dead whale if it washes up on shore because it's so toxic. So I mean, they're they're facing a number of of stresses right now. That right. it's not just the salmon. Like they have. They have a number of, of sort of human-induced okay. um, problems associated with them, whereas, you know, these northern populations, for sure, they, they've they sort of got the best of everything. You know, they've got a wide-open coast. They, you know, they're not dealing with heavy industry, and and uh, they've got a lot more salmon to eat up there. Hmm. Are they messing with the um, um, salmon hat- not hatcheries, the fish farms? 
that are out there? Do they mess with those? Are there stories you know, about that? That's a good question. I'm not. I'm not sure if they do or not. I mean, Sean might know, but like, you know, I like think that the, hatcheries? the no. resident. I have. I have a friend oh, that, net, that the, I used to the open ocean ones. I got you. Yeah. Yeah. The um, I have a friend that I used to the, to bird hunt with, and he's a sablefish and halibut fisherman, and you know, he says that they'd hear the long lines coming in, and they. You, he said, you know, you just see them racing across the horizon, and wow. they just. They high grade. They actually high grade for the black cod for the sable fish. Um, mm. At first, they go after the halibut, but now they're they're into sable fish. But yeah, so they, I, you know, I mean, there, there's there's always going to be interactions between marine mammals and, and fishermen, just because fishermen they, you know, they've got a fish at the end of the hook, so it's pretty easy easy picking. But I, you know, I I don't think that 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 is what's helping the, these northern resident populations or hurting the southern resident populations for that matter. I think that the southern residents are sort of a particular case where they just have multiple stressors sure. over the last 50 years. That toxic and, and piece is, I've never heard of anything. I've never the heard of that or the, before, before that, just how toxic the Yeah, there, it's yeah. something like 1,500 times the lethal limit. Or so, I mean, it's it's outrageous, so, whatever the So do you, the do you eat sushi? Is. Just orchid. Do I? Yeah, I love sushi. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have not stopped eating. My daughter, who's two and a half, loves to eat sushi. So, um, um, so, so we we haven't given up on fish from the sea. No, right. Um, yeah. But I probably wouldn't eat a rockfish from Puget Sound. That's for sure. <laughs> the question is sort of what's what? What do you think is uh, you know going to happen in the in the future with these pinniped populations? I'm, and when I say I'm optimistic about management, uh, you know I. <clears throat> as a, you know, I grew up a hunter and fisherman and I, I still go out hunting and fishing. And, and when I, when I say I'm optimistic about management, it's that, you know, we will, the, the Marine Mammal Protection Act will hopefully evolve the same way that, um, that ESA was, was written. And that is that now that some of these pinniped populations have recovered, I think that there are, um, management plans that can be implemented to, to, um, to manage these, these predator populations, just as we've come up with management plans to manage wolves in states like Idaho and Montana, or, you know, grizzly, soon to be grizzly bears in, in the interior mountain West. And, <clears throat> you know, you're never going to see me out there harvesting seals. It's just not something that I would do personally, but I, I think there is, um, there is evidence and there is motivation by a number of user groups that, that it is time to, to reevaluate how we view these these populations, and so I'm I'm actually optimistic that 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 process has begun. It's going to take a little while. It might take ten years to, to for it to evolve to to the point that that we'll, we can actually accomplish um, the goal of of saving salmon and steelhead or or helping salmon and steelhead populations by by managing pinniped populations. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, I I actually I'm I'm fairly optimistic that that, that will happen in the future. That's good to hear. Um, I was hoping the timeline was a little shorter, but yeah, yeah I get it. It takes time. Um, hmm. What do you think, Sean? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't want to be a wet blanket, but I guess I'm less optimistic having just been through an effort to try and amend the MMPA and knowing how hard that is. Um, I think it's going to take some pretty major crises. In other words, fish runs going extinct before you can start to deal with things on the coast. Um, and there's going to need to be a lot more science done to show 
the level of the problem out there. Yeah. Um, well, in a lot of these estuaries, we just don't know what the impact is. Um, right. So, and, and also because there's multiple, there's multiple things that's, that's causing this issue with these runs, right? There's multiple things. Yeah. Uh, if you, if you look at the, uh, you know, the smorgasbord of things that are, that are kind of, you know, keeping these runs down. Where does a pinniped rank in terms of, you know, causal kinds of things on a scale of like one to 10 vis-a-vis everything else? Yeah. And then, you know, in scenarios like in the Columbia Basin, Bonneville Dam or Willamette Falls, we can tell you that. Um, Willamette Falls, it was number one. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the coast, it's, much more challenging because um, we just don't even know what the impact is, what the predation impact is. Um, and we don't know all those kind of foodware complexities where those seals, in addition to eating salmon, they're eating predators of salmon. So um, right. rockfish, link, et cetera. So, um, you know, you might think, yeah, we could cull sea lions and, and get the population down and that would be good for salmon, but you're also taking off control of other predators of salmon um, and just right. the, the, how that plays out is really uncertain. And, and in a lot of places where we've tried this with other predators, it hasn't worked out very well. So um, there's uncertainties there. There would need to be a lot more science and there would need to be a lot more um, willingness in Congress to deal, deal with this kind of thing that I see right now. Yeah, it makes me. I, I always get a. Sh- I get a shower thought like every four episodes, and I and I just had one, and I'm wondering if like you know many many light years away from us, there's a there's a Terran Protection Act that they're trying to amend right now because they see us the the predation of humans on the planet, and they're thinking about a calling. <laughs> there you go. I think there's a couple books that have been written about that. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm a I'm a sci-fi nerd. I'm just thinking about how expensive yeah. all this sounds and how cheap a 12 gauge shotgun round is or, or a 22 250. <laughs> I know I'm not, that's bad. I know, but anyways, um, well, if somebody can, it sounds like if somebody can figure out a non-lethal way to keep uh sea lions off their, off the, uh, the salmon and steelhead, they could make some serious money. They would. Yeah. It's been tried and failed so far. Hmm. So how, how can our listeners, um, what, what are some things that they can do um, by just getting educated and, and helping you guys or helping some organizations that are that are out there, um, especially with, in regards to the orcas? Well, you know, for, from, from our standpoint of view, you know, from, from, so I work for the National Marine Fisheries Service now and, and, you know, we do, we, we are not in the public policy sphere. So we do the science, we pass the science on to the legislatures or mm-hmm. in this case, the, the public mm-hmm. and they make the ultimate decision. But, you know, I think that like anything, you know, the legislatures respond best to calls, you know, not emails, not mass emails, but actually calls from their constituents. And, and, you know, I, again, I, you know, I see bipartisan support for, you know, managing these pinnipeds. And so I think it's, um, you know, it's just a, I think it's a matter of framing it so that, that, that we can accomplish goals, but also, you know, remain sensitive to, to, you know, everybody, all the, all the constituents that, that, yeah, people, right. that these legislators it, serve. So it's, it's, a slippery it's, a, slope. it's a real hard sell from a political side to start talking about calling seals when you, there's those pictures of those, uh, 
those seals in the Arctic that are white with the little babies with the doughy eyes and the, <laughs> and the, the, the guys, you know, with the baseball bats walking around, you know, it's like a, that's what people have in their minds when they think about it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think that you're going to see people out there shooting seals. I don't think that that's the way it's going to happen. And I think that there will be, you know, I mean, you can capture these, they, they, they well, I, I don't want to be the guy that talks about how seals can be, be removed, <laughs> but there, there's ways that, that, that the seals can be removed from the system. Again, you know, from a biological point of view, from a strictly biological point of view, there's the removing, you know, when, when I think of these seal populations, I think of sort of the, I, I tend to think of everything in terms of a fishery. And so there's the terminal fishery, which are the seals below Willamette Falls or the seals below the dam. And then the, there's sort of the intercept fisheries, which are the seals out on the coast, which just, you know, happen to catch us, uh, a salmon or a steelhead when it swims by and you know the place that we're going to have probably the most management effect is is these terminal um fisheries these terminal seals and and they just also happen to be the most visual so you know there just has to be care in the future i think in, right. in terms of how yeah. how how we go about managing those individuals well cool um should we wrap it up? Because I know you guys have hard stops right at four, and it's four oh five right now for us. So, um, sure, you want to put this baby to bed? Cool. Okay. Well, hey, thank you guys for both coming on on the show. Uh, appreciate the time, and we got the audio. We, you know, we're, both these guys were remote today, folks. Obviously, um, audio quality not as good as you're used to, but content I hope was was on point as hopefully as usual. Um, if you like this episode, please rate us on iTunes and Google Play and all the other spots that we're on now. Um, what else, Nick? Did I hear a foghorn in the background no, from one of you guys? I, oh, maybe. Where are you guys? Well, it wasn't my dog because the dog's in the other room. Are you, are you guys on the coast right now? Not me. No. Well, no. Nope. All right. <laughs> all I guess right. we'll. Sean, did you have anything you want to wrap up with? No, I think we're good. I uh, hope your folks got everything they needed. Awesome. Well, thank you guys very much for your time. We, we really appreciate it. And um, maybe hope to have you back on the show uh, down the road. All right. Thanks a lot. Thanks, fellas. Sounds good. Cheers, sir. Take care. Yeah. This podcast would not be possible without support from our sponsors, Fish Bio and Amped Up Bill. FishBio is a consulting firm that offers a fresh approach to fishery science. They specialize in fish research, monitoring, and conservation with innovative uses of technology and communication. From their offices in Chico, Oakdale, and Santa Cruz, California, to Vienchen, Laos, FishBio is committed to solving natural resource challenges locally and globally. Learn more at www.fishbio.com. And Amp.Bill. Amp is a software design and engineering shop located in Chico, California. Amp creates beautiful apps for mobile and desktop devices, wearables, and the Internet of Things. Amp develops native, web, and hybrid apps on a variety of platforms. Chad, who co-hosts this podcast, is the agency's founder. Learn more at www.amp.bill.